From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. My big fear, and this is, I guess, taking us full circle back to where we started. Uh, my big fear is that this now, we, we celebrate uh, justice and uh, it, it fades into the background until the next terrible thing happens, right? I, I, I can't help but think of the parallel to the case of gun control, um, right? We have the, the mass shooting, everybody's upset. Um, there's talk about passing gun legislation and then just enough time passes that, um, you know, it fades into the background and then the next one happens. And it's like, oh, why? Why didn't we do anything before? We'll do something this time. Welcome to the last episode of season six of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. As former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin awaits sentencing in the murder of George Floyd, Miami Law's criminal law expert and former special assistant, U.S. Attorney Scott Sunby, explains the processes. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Scott. Nice to have you back. Good morning. Good to hear your voice, Catherine. Ditto. Um, so first, why is the verdict a watershed moment? Like, why or, or why not? Um, I think we have to wait and see. Um, there's some reason to be optimistic that this is a true change in sort of the stream of events and that, uh, we will get much more serious about, uh, police abuse, especially of, uh, minority members of, uh, the, uh, citizenry. But we have to keep in mind, Catherine, this was a very unusual case in the strength of the prosecution's, uh, proof. I mean, they had a 10 minute video from eight different angles um, that was just very powerful in a, in a sad way, but undeniable. They had eyewitnesses who were very compelling and backed up by the video evidence. Um, they had a victim who came across as very likable and uh, loved uh, by his family uh, and friends. They had great expert witnesses who were able to sort of preempt the defense's line of saying, oh, this was a medical event, not a uh, police-induced uh, fatality. Um, and I mean, I, I've listened to a lot of experts. Uh, these were, especially uh, Dr. Tomlin, I fell in love with. I just thought he was superb the way he taught uh, the jury about pulmonary uh, processes. Um, and uh, so we had a case where, you know, the, the prosecution still had to weave a uh, narrative, and I thought they did so impressively, um, but they had such an array of rich sources to draw upon. So I hesitate to say, uh, so if you had asked me if they had acquitted, would I view it as a watershed moment? The answer probably would be yes. If you can't get a conviction in this case, you know, then let's just all pack our bags and go home, right? Um, but it makes it hard then to say, well, is this truly a, a change uh, that's coming about? And and I guess one other thing, Catherine, um, in talking about is this a watershed moment, is um, that you know, it, it to get real meaningful reform, it has to go deep. So it's not something um, you know, like uh, the push for gay marriage. 
where once the Supreme Court said it was constitutional, then you had it cemented, right? Um, here, you know, even though we're now, I think, as a society, acknowledging problems with policing, especially of minority communities, um, it is something where you need deep systemic reform. You need to get rid of uh, qualified immunity so that civil suits actually stand a chance. That's a whole different podcast, by the way. Um, we need to uh, really start talking about what we want with policing, right? Get them out of the business, which most police officers will tell you they don't want to be in, such as responding to mental health calls, um, even law, uh, excuse me, traffic enforcement. Um, you know, that's, that's not why a lot of people sign up to be police officers. Um, and yet we, you know, find that, uh, it's those interactions off of traffic, uh, violations that lead to so many of these abuses. Now, often those are pretextual. They're not really interested in the air freshener on the back, uh, or the rear window mirror. They actually want to sort of see more about the person driving, which is usually because of the color of their skin and their right. age. Driving while all. black, right. Driving while black, precisely. Um, but we, we, there are things that we could do that would, I think, improve it considerably. But unless those things get done, uh, I fear that this will not be the watershed moment that it otherwise could be. Right, right. Um, there seemed to be, well, one thing I wanted to ask you about when you were saying like, you know, this was the perfect setup. And if you can't get it here, you can't get it anywhere. Also, early in the game, the case was transferred into a, a higher prosecutorial uh, role. And that that seemed to, like, ramp things up a, a little bit. Um, but also, I wanted, uh, wanted you to talk a little about the makeup of the jury and how that that contributed. It seemed there... There was a marked difference from other juries in in police killing cases. So, you know, there's relatively few prosecutions of police officers. So as a social scientist, uh, one hesitates to say, you know, well, this is the usual makeup, right? Because there's just not a lot of cases to uh, compare it to. So many of the cases, uh, like the Breonna Taylor case, don't even make it out of the grand jury. So you don't even have trials, right? Um, and so it's a little hard to say, well, what is the typical makeup? And of course, typical makeup of a jury in any one county uh, or city uh, is going to depend upon generally the makeup of the population uh, pool. So this is unusual, at least in this sense. The uh, population of Hennepin County, where this took place, um, is about 74% white. And only 17% uh, people of color. The jury was 50% non-white. So that is unusual. So even without taking into account other counties or, or excuse me, other police prosecutions, um, this would be unusual to have uh, a, a such a, a robust representation of uh, minorities on the jury. And uh, there's a couple reasons that probably happened. Um, one being that, uh, as you may know, the Supreme Court back in 1986 uh, handed down a decision called Batson versus Kentucky, which said that you cannot strike individuals because of race. Um, there are many of us who have been very um, skeptical that that has been enforced in the way that the Supreme Court thought it would be enforced. But in a case like this, 
where any challenge by the defense of a minority juror, so, and, and by challenge, I mean a preparatory challenge. Each side is given a certain number of challenges that they can use for any reason other than race or gender. And uh, then there's this whole process as the judge has to decide, well, was it really because of race? And often on very dubious grounds, they decide it is not. But in this case where race was so front and center, I think it really probably uh, kept uh, the defense attorney from exercising preparatory challenges on minority uh, jurors, uh, potential jurors, uh, because of the concern about uh, Batson and and how this might work. So um, I think, again, because it was in a spotlight, a national spotlight, um, that might help explain why we ended up with uh, a jury with uh, so so robust uh, a representation of minority jurors. Mm-hmm. Um, while we're throwing around terms, um, we heard a lot during the proceedings about the Blakely factors or Blakely trial or Blakely hearing and Blakely waiver. What does that mean and why did it or does it matter in this case? Um, so can I just say when I heard the phrase Blakely factor being thrown around, it's like, oh, man, sometimes it's good to be a crim pro nerd. Right. <laughs> um, I may be one of the few people uh, in my neighborhood who knows what that is. Right. Um, I totally comes, love that you're a crim pro nerd. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, there are worse nerds to be, I guess. But um, uh, and worse non-nerds. But um, so Blakely factors uh, are called that and not all states. All of that, but off of a Supreme Court case called uh, Blakely versus Washington. Um, and it was a decision which said that if you are going to increase a sentence um, above what uh, would be the normal sentence, a jury has to find the facts which justify that higher sentence. Um, this was actually something that Justice Scalia really pushed. And you want to talk about another interesting podcast. We could talk about the late Justice Scalia, who was a very complicated uh, and fascinating justice. But um, one of his big things was, you know, juries are central to American criminal justice. And it used to be before Blakely that you would convict someone of, say, basic second degree murder as it's here. And then the judge would say, oh, by the way, I happen to find these extra factors, which were never argued to the jury, the jury never had to find, um, and um, I'm going to give you a much higher sentence. And the defendants, of course, going, well, what about the jury? I thought I had a right to a jury. And uh, Justice Scalia said, yeah, you do, when it has that type of impact, essentially making it a, even a higher offense than what the jury convicted you of. Um, so those are the Blakely factors. Um, sort of these special sentencing factors. Um, in this case, it would be things um, that I, uh, like th- there was a particularly vulnerable victim or it was done in a particularly cruel fashion or that there were children present because there were some minors who were watching uh, Chauvin uh, with his knee on uh, George Floyd's neck. So those would be Blakely factors because if those are found, it allows the judge to go higher in the sentence than he other uh, or she otherwise would be allowed to do. Okay. Hand in pocket throughout the interchange. I don't know. That would be definitely a factor. Well, so yeah, and that would probably be argued as showing that this was particularly cruel, if you will, 
or uh, another one is abuse of government authority. Uh, and so you're going beyond what you're allowed to do, which we now know the jury certainly found, right, uh, that this was not a lawful use of police force. So those are the Blakely factors usually found by a jury. Um, here, the defense waived the jury. Um, probably uh, makes sense uh, from a defense perspective, uh, in part because you know the you know if they're coming back guilty, the jury's already sort of you know very much against your client. And some of these, um, I could see wanting a judge, especially someone like Judge Cahill, who comes across as sort of a very by the book, uh, you know, this is what the law says, and I'm not going to stretch it. Um, some of these terms. Uh, he might not be quite as shocked having been on the bench for a long time as to what is cruelty or uh, a particularly vulnerable victim. So I don't know. I have no idea to know what Cahill will rule on these, but um, it, it's not irrational by any stretch for the defense attorney to say, I'd rather take my chance with these with the judge uh, rather than the jury. Well, is Minnesota sort of unusual in that a sentence doesn't stack? that they only sentence on the most egregious charge. Whereas I think in other places you get, you know, 10 years for this, 10 years for that. Not really. Um, So often what happens is uh, some of these charges. So essentially, if you think about what was charged, Catherine, it was really sort of giving the jury a cascading, descending uh, options. So there was second degree murder. And if they didn't find that, they could have then found third degree murder, which is a lesser charge. If they didn't find third degree murder, they could have found manslaughter. So from the prosecution's viewpoint, um, it's sort of making sure there will be a conviction. Right. Um, Again, the, the evidence was very strong on second degree murder. But, you know, you're building in sort of those insurance policies. And sometimes, depending how they're defined, we even call those lower charges, lesser included offenses. Um, and, and the idea is that they kind of fold into the higher offense because otherwise you're really punishing someone, depending on how the, the, the sentencing structures put out. But you, uh, if each one is punished separately, you're kind of punishing someone, in this case, three times for the same behavior, which was using unlawful force uh, on George Floyd. Um, and, you know, it, double jeopardy is one of those concepts like three people in the world understand. It's sort of like the theory of relativity. Right. But um, it, it, so this depending on how it's defined, you might even have double jeopardy issues. So um, this even though, um, you know, it states various how they do it, it would be very unusual to have sort of three charges off of the exact same behavior um, stacking in a way. What some states would do is they, they might allow sentences for all three, but they make them run concurrently, which means that it's, it's the exact same thing. So the overall end result is not unusual, I guess, is uh, the, <laughs> a very long answer to get to a short answer. Not like the movie Double Jeopardy. Um, <laughs> uh, Cahill has an immense latitude in, in, in sentencing. Um, so... In this case, the felony second degree murder has a maximum sentence of 40 years. So how far up or down could Cahill go? Yeah. So um, this is something, again, um, it's really easy to hear the overall uh, sentence, right? Gosh, you could get up to 40 years and think there's a a lot of latitude. 
Um, that latitude is, and it used to be actually that way. Uh, there's some old cases where the sentence uh, would be one day to life. <laughs> you want to talk about um, sort of discretion, right? Um, and um, over time, especially starting in the 1980s, um, uh, there was a real concern that judges had too much latitude, that, you know, again, often based on the color of the skin, one person was getting a year, uh, the other person was getting 10 years for basically the exact same behavior, right? So we've moved largely in the United States. And again, part of the problem talking about this is there's, you know, 51 different systems, right? The 50 states and the federal government. Um, but by and large, we have moved to what are known as sentencing guidelines, which are meant to sort of uh, at least guide in some states really contain what uh, sentences uh, can be handed down. Um, so I am not an expert by any stretch on Minnesota sentencing guidelines, but um, you know, my understanding looking at it briefly is that basically he's looking at a 10 to 15 year sentence. Uh, the presumptive sentence is 12 and a half years. Um, and if he finds that as Judge Cahill, Blakely factors, what we just talked about, it could go higher than that. Um, but um, th that is basically you really have to justify. So if we say a presumptive sentence, you're going to have to justify as the judge making that higher. So I, I, I would push back a little on the, the uh, saying that he has uh, immense latitude because he actually doesn't uh, in the sense of, well, this feels like a 30-year sentence to me, right? Uh, he's got to go within the guidelines. So depending what happens with the Blakely factors, we're probably looking at something in the, you know, probably 15 to 20-year range at, 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 I would guess at the maximum. Um, and if I prove wrong and he gives a 40-year sentence, can we go back and edit this out? But Anyway, that's how the guidelines in theory are supposed to, to work. Right. I mean, 12 and a half years for a white cop killing a black man in prison is probably pretty hard time. Well, right. And he's, you know, he's in administrative uh, housing right now. Um, you know, this is, you know, uh, going to be a tough go for uh, Chauvin. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, so there was news that it broke this week on uh, a federal prosecution for a violation of Floyd's civil rights under color of law. What is this and what could be the potential fallout? So there's two aspects of a federal role here. Um, one is to actually prosecute. So uh, if you violate even a state police officer, if you violate someone's federal civil rights, that is a crime. Um, and it is often used as sort of a backup if the state prosecution fails. Um, so uh, for those of you out there uh, old enough like me to remember the uh, beating of Rodney King, um, and one of, the, one of the first times that at a national level police abuse of uh, uh, minority uh, members got attention, this was two on video, right? And uh, there was a state prosecution um, talking about juries and how they influence this, Catherine. Um, that case, which actually happened in L.A., uh, was moved up to Simi Valley. And Simi Valley was a very white ex-military population. And the jury 
uh, acquitted these police officers who had beaten Rodney King, and we got the L.A. riots. Um, and what happened then is the federal government stepped in and prosecuted those police officers for violation of Rodney King's civil rights. They, the case, the trial took place in L.A. Uh, it's a different jury pool as well when you have a federal case. Um, and uh, they got uh, some uh, convictions of the officers in that case. Um, I have not heard that there's actually going to be a federal prosecution in this case. Um, it's still possible, but it's probably less likely now that he's been convicted. What the federal government also can do, and which I know they are doing, is what's known as a uh, pattern and practice investigation, which is that they will go in and they will review, in this case, the Minneapolis Police Department and come up with all sorts of uh, recommendations and findings um, and then uh, that the uh, Minneapolis Police Department will need to follow. And if they don't, then there can be civil lawsuits and uh, judicial orders obtained to make them do that. Um, you may remember that this is what happened in uh, Ferguson, uh, Missouri. Uh, and there was a very uh, interesting, important, and disturbing uh, report that came out of that that was done by uh, the Department of Justice. Um, and this was actually prior to Trump, a fairly not, I, common is probably too strong a word, but Many large cities especially had their uh, police departments uh, go under these types of reviews where there were problems. Um, that kind of ended under the Trump era. Now, uh, Attorney General Garland has indicated that I think he's going to be uh, stronger in pursuing this. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you have. Let me start that again. I know you don't have a crystal ball, Scott, or I don't know, maybe you do. But how does this verdict bode for the other three officers uh, with their trial in August? So I do have a crystal ball, but I use it only for day trading on Wall Street. Um, and uh, I try to keep it very specific. Uh, so I won't use it on this. But um, yeah, you know, it's really, uh, that's an uh, interesting question, tough question, Catherine. Um, because the basic idea is these are the officers who were around Chauvin. Right. And they are now being charged on an aiding and abetting theory, <clears throat> what we sometimes call being an accomplice. And the physical aspect of that charge is clearly going to be found, which is that you basically help the person com commit the crime. So if, if I hold the ladder for you, Catherine, while you climb up into your neighbor's second floor uh, because they've got a really nice big screen TV, um, you are guilty of burglary. I'm also guilty of burglary because I, I aided and abetted you, right? Um, the problem for the prosecution uh, with this is you also, though, have to show that they had the mental state, uh, what crim pro or crim law nerds would call the mens rea, um, that they also had the mental state required for the crime. And in Chauvin's case, it's basically he intentionally used deadly force that he was aware, you know, was capable of causing death. And um, so the different roles might play a, a part of this. So I know there was one police officer who was across the way. You know, um, I don't even know. I, I, I don't know. I'm not casting judgment because I don't know whether he even knew that uh, this was happening in the sense of, Chauvin having his knee for all that time on Floyd's neck. I don't know what his viewpoint was. So that might be a part. 
Um, one thing which if I was the defense attorney for these uh, police officers, I'd really be looking into is, um, you know, as, as I understand it, Chauvin was their commanding officer, or the senior officer, and some of them were quite junior in terms of having been police officers. And there's going to be a dynamic there where um, I know that at least at one point, one of the officers said, you know, gee, should we get a plea? Uh, should we roll him on his side? Should we get a, another ambulance or whatever? And Chauvin's like, no, 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 right? It, it's the ambulance is on the way. It's all fine. I could see as the defense attorney, you know, saying, hey, listen, this guy, you know, is junior. He's being told I've got it all under control. Everything's fine. You know, it would not be, you know, unreasonable for him. I'm not saying this is how I'd find him. I just uh, keep, the, keep the hate mail uh, off, right? But uh, I could see a defense attorney saying, hey, listen, you know, he, he didn't understand that this actually was posing a deadly force because he's thinking this guy's been a police officer for 20 years. What do I know, right? So again, there are dynamics to it, which I wouldn't be surprised if there may be uh, uh, the jury find a lower, uh, you know, something like the manslaughter charge or the third degree homicide charge, uh, you know, based on in each police officer's role. So, uh, and if it's a joint trial, which is what I think at the moment it's scheduled to be, that is all three officers uh, uh, being tried at the same time, you know, how their different roles play in also might benefit some and, and hurt others in the jury's eyes, right? Um, so my crystal ball on this, uh, if I had one for this, would be very, very clouded because uh, it's going to be, a, I think, a far more complicated case uh, from the prosecution's viewpoint than Chauvin. Uh -huh. um, this last question, you, you've touched on partially uh, earlier in the show, but what do you think the verdict means in terms of the future of policing and holding officers and, in this case, police departments accountable? So I do think that it is uh, sparking a national conversation, which is, is very, very needed and very helpful. Um, I think um, it's oddly good that it happened in Minneapolis. Um, if this had happened in a city in the Deep South, um, I think, you know, there is a fair, I grew up in the upper Midwest. And so I sort of know these attitudes, right? And uh, there would be many people are like, well, yeah, of course that happened in, you know, uh, Houston or uh, Atlanta or Charleston. You know, that's, you know, that's what happens down there, right? Um, it's in Minneapolis, which really prides itself on sort of being this, you know, relatively liberal hipster uh, city. Um, and it turns out that Chauvin is not by any stretch an anomaly, right? There are real problems with the uh, police department. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, makes everybody sort of sit up and go, you know, whoa, um, you know, there, there are problems with policing generally. Um, and again, when I say that, I don't want to sound anti-police because, you know, we need police, right? You're all, you, you want a police officer when you are, uh, there's a burglary or people are attacking uh, a demonstration. Um, what we really need is that conversation of um, what is it that we want the police to do um, and how do we limit the situations where they are involved, where these things could happen. 
Um, and, you know, one other thing, Catherine, that people don't uh, often understand is that um, who becomes a police officer and the training they undergo varies dramatically <clears throat> from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, there are some states, some cities which have, you know, very uh, impressive uh, police academies and training. Um, you know, there are other areas where uh, you, you can get hired with minimal training, especially when funds are tight. Um, and so, um, you know, a conversation that we've never really had in the U.S. Um, is, you know, should we have some type of uniform requirements for police officers um, that, you know, would help us ensure that we have uh, officers who are well-trained um, and, you know, understand things like the, the use of force. Uh, in a, a smallish country like uh, the United Kingdom, um, you know, you can have, you have a central police force. Uh, they, you know, you have uh, uniform training. Uh, of course, there are very few officers can carry guns. Um, you know, so there are ways that we can um, have, uh, you know, a conversation which is needed. My big fear, and this is, I guess, taking us full circle back to where we started. Uh, my big fear is that this now, we, we celebrate uh, justice and uh, it, it fades into the background until the next terrible thing happens, right? I, I, I can't help but think of the parallel to debates about gun control, um, right? We have the, the mass shooting, everybody's upset. Um, there's talk about passing gun legislation and then just enough time passes that, um, you know, it fades into the background and then the next one happens. And it's like, oh, why? Why didn't we do anything before? We'll do something this time. And then time fades. And, and so, you know, this is also, it should not be a partisan uh, issue that is proper policing. I mean, everybody is affected by it. Um, but I'm afraid it's going to be turned into one um, where either you're pro-police or you're anti-police. And, and if we fall into that conversation, I am very pessimistic um, that, you know, anything of uh, meaning will be done other than perhaps in a few cities. I know Berkeley and Ithaca, uh, New York are, are doing things, but, you know, those are sort of, you know, like, if we're going to stereotype, you know, that's the Birkenstock crowd, right? Um, and, and, you know, my fear is you're just going to get that uh, and, and bravo to them. but we really need to have a conversation with serious people on all sides of the political aisle. And, and my fear is that that's not going to happen, right? That, you know, some demagogue is going to get up and, you know, running for president say, you know, they're after the police, you know, they're anti, you know, anti-American, um, you know, and, and, and once that starts to happen, uh, yeah, um, it becomes uh, an issue like every other political issue these days, uh, bogged down uh, in, in partisan, uh, you know, and it's not, shouldn't be partisan squabbling. I mean, police reform is really necessary, and even police will tell you that. Uh -huh. Well, another hopeful, helpful podcast with Scott Sunby. Thank you, Catherine. Great to talk with you as always. Thanks again for joining us. I'll see you around. All right. Ciao. Thanks, sir.
Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for Season 6 and another season of Interpreting Legal Issues in the Headlines. We will return in August, but stay tuned for some summer bonus episodes. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's annual bankruptcy skills workshop on June 2nd and 4th. The virtual workshop focuses on the current direction of consumer bankruptcy and other complex financial issues. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.